Well, by show of hands, who is a member of a group or a team? Uh, any kind of group. It could be like music, art, group, team, club. What are you? What what kind of group or member team thing are you in? The snack team. There you go. How about that? Way in the back. Cross country. What else? Who else is in a group or a team? I need some. I need some options. Middle. Soccer. So that's sports. Football. How about some non-athletic teams? We have a snack team. Anything else? Small groups. Absolutely. Does anyone do like theater? That's kind of. That's a group. That's a theme. That's a team, right? Um, music. Anyone play music? Some of you play that in a group, right? And it's not just by yourself. Well, there are a lot of personal implications about doing that because you all have individual talents or responsibilities. If you're on the snack team, um, you have responsibilities to know like what snacks go where. You have to know what, what things happen. Um, get the gluten-free things right just in case there are, are, are those that need that. Um, but same thing with music. Right, we just we just had a, a, a great team lead us in worship. In worship, there's individual responsibilities in that group. They all have to know their parts. They all have to practice. They all actually actually have the skill. Could you imagine if if uh, Noah was up here and we said, "Hey, Noah, you're going to play the drums," but Noah had never played the drums before, and he was like, "Well, I can do it, but I mean, I don't think you're going to want me to, and I don't think we'd want him to either." Right? He has responsibility to practice, to be to be skilled, a skilled musician. And then to know his part and then do it individually. And then it doesn't stop there. It doesn't matter if you're good at those things individually. If it's a group effort, you have to come together and bring your talents and fit them into a group. The snack team, could you imagine if, if Alice, if all the poor other people in the snack team was like, Alice, like, we're doing snacks like this, guys. And she's just like throwing them on the table and like stacking the coffee on top of each other. And it's like, I want the coffee up here. I want to pour it down this tube and we're going to hold it in the bottom. People could be getting burned and running out of the door with tears flowing from their eyes. Or if Noah said, you know, I'm going to just play the drums as loud as I want to. He's going to drown everyone else out. No, there are responsibilities that we have when, we're in a, when we are in a group. We have a function, and we set aside our personal priorities. It's not a drum solo. It's not a, not a guitar solo, right? When you're in, the th in the, you're in the theater, if you're not the lead part, you don't get to be in the chorus and act like you have the leading part. And even if you have the leading part, if that's where you are, you don't get to trample over what everyone else is doing. You have to fit in your role so that as a group, you achieve the, the end. Well, in the same way, we discovered in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that we have an individual position in Christ. We have an individual position in Christ. Uh, the, the position of every person before Christ is that they're dead. That, that we're all born in that position. We are dead. No spiritual life. And that because of that, we walked in accordance to the world. We engaged in sin. We were called children of wrath. And then we saw individually, God delivers people individually, right? He, 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 he takes the initiative because of his mercy and love, and he gives us life. And he raises us with Christ and seats us at Christ's right hand. And then on Wednesday, we explored really the purpose of deliverance. What are we supposed to do? And it's those good works that God has prepared for us to walk in that we're supposed to, to, supposed to do. Well, after exploring and, and explaining that individual position in Christ, Paul now turns his, attentions in, 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 in his attention in Ephesians 2.11 through the end of the chapter 
into our corporate position in Christ. Not only do we have a, 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 an individual position, we have a corporate position. We are brought into relationship, not just with Christ, but with the fellowship of saints, with all believers. And there are profound truths that, that flow from that. You see, just like individuals on, on, on a team have implications and we have to relate with one another differently on a team, the same is true in the church. We don't come into the body of Christ and as individuals push forth our, our, our personal pet feelings, our, our, our projects, our initiatives. No, we come together as a body of Christ unified to His purpose. Purpose. And, and to understand our position in Christ corporately, those Gentiles in Ephesus, and most of us here, is going to be the focus of, of Paul's, um, Paul, Paul's um, explanation here at the beginning of the chapter, verses 11 and 12. Um, they're going to have to remember that they were both physically and spiritually separated from Israel. So our title today is Remember. Remember, it's a call to all of us to remember some, some key things that we'll explore together. So what I'd like for us to do is look, turn to Ephesians. We're still in chapter 2, and we're going to be studying today verses 11 and 12. Uh, so if you'd open your Bibles there with me, Ephesians 2, we're going to look at verses 11 and 12, and I'll, and I'll start by reading them for us. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision, by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. So what I want to draw your attention to first is that We've had, a, we've had a number of great Bible teachers coming up through the first chapter and a half of Ephesians, and I have to break it to you, but a number of them have lied to you because they say, hey, Paul doesn't start making commands until chapter 4. So there's a lot of indicatives, a lot of good information in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and then in 4 he's going to start telling you what to do. I hate to break it to you, but in chapter 2, verse 11, Paul's telling us to do something, and it's not a, it's not a doctrinal thing. I understand what they're saying. Paul's not going to give doctrinal instruction until chapter 3. That is true. But Paul is going to make a very key point because the doctrinal, the doctrinal imperatives, the instruction he is going to give us, are anchored in these. The, the opposite of an imperative is an indicative. He is going, they're anchored in this. And one of the key things is that we need to remember a lot, not only the doctrine he's teaching us, but also some key realities about us. So Paul gives us a command here that we must, Christians, remember. And this verb is in the present tense, so it's not just, hey, like, would you remember this? And you do it once and you're done. It's this idea of you need to live a life where you are remembering what we're about to study. These realities don't have a one, one time, one space in time implication. They have an implication throughout our Christian lives. So we should remember what Paul is about to tell us. And he's going he's gonna to tell us two key things in this passage that we need to remember. First is our physical separation, our physical separation from God's people. And then second, our spiritual separation, our physical separation and our spiritual separation. And it starts out with, well, who? Who should do this remembering? 
specifically. This actually isn't a universal command. Paul starts out with a command to remember, and notice he says that the, the who is the Gentiles. The who is the Gentiles. And I'm going to assume that's most of us here. Most of us here today, I know that applies to me. I'm not descended from Israel. From, from Israel. I can't trace my lineage back. And I think that's true for, for most people in this room, maybe all of us, that we are Gentiles in the flesh. So Paul, understand that there are, right, when we do the Bible study and there's then and always and now, Paul then was speaking here to the Gentiles. And we understand that the church was in Ephesus. That doesn't sound very Hebrew. It's a Greek city. So the church is going to be comprised of mostly Gentile individuals. So that makes sense. But, but always and now, this actually is very relevant because we're all Gentiles. So what Paul is saying here, it's actually a very easy application because what is true for the, Paul's audience is very true for us. We're all Gentiles in the flesh. So it's very helpful to understand that. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. Now, why, when Paul is now talking about our corporate, collective identity in Christ, would he talk about the Gentiles in the flesh? Well, if you're any student of the Bible at all, you understand that there's probably no greater divide, friction point, distinction, fight, and tension in Scripture between two groups of people than the Jews and the Gentiles. And if they're going to come together in Christ, if Christ is saving Jews and if Christ is saving Gentiles, and they're going to come together and they're going to be in a church, if they're going to be in the church universally and in a local church like this and sit next to each other, well, there's going to have to be some, some discussion that has to happen. Because there is a lot of tension, you know, we have a lot of talk about separation and a division in our, in our world, and um, people will talk about, like, when you have, like, the, the, the current social justice movement, and there's, there's this enmity that, that truly does exist between, between some different racial groups both in America and across the world. That's true. Those are real things that happen. But the solution is found in Christ, which is what Paul's ultimate point is going to be here, but there's really no greater divide. So when we talk about those issues today, like you watch, you watch the news, like, like God forbid you would watch cable news and, and, and just watch them talk. And they, they talk about divisions between like Republicans and Democrats or any other groups. Um, Cowboys fan and people that actually appreciate football. Um, you know, this is for Michael. Um, you have d divisions between different races, different countries, Palestinian and Jew. You have divisions between nations, Ukraine and Russia. All these divisions, and they talk about them like it's the worst division possible. Well, understand that the, the enmity between Jews and Gentiles far surpassed any of those divisions. And if you fast forward to Galatians, they're one in Christ. Right? There's neither Jew nor Gentile. So the solution is Christ. Giving, I'm kind of revealing what's going to be coming later in chapter 2. The solution is Christ. How do we get there? We'll see. But there's no, I, I, I would be hard-pressed to find a greater division of people in the history of the world than Jew and Gentile. So Paul's going to start here. No greater division. And so, well, who are the Gentiles? If there's no greater division than Jew or the Gentiles, I think we understand who the Jews are, right? They're descended from Abraham through Isaac, through Jacob and through the 12 tribes of Israel. So that's, that's pretty easy. But who are the Gentiles? Well, the word 
And the verse Gentiles in Greek is just the word ethnos, which you're familiar with, right? It sounds like ethnicity. It just means nations. So there is Israel, and then there's the nations. And that makes sense because it's not just one group of people. It's not like it was just, the Gentiles aren't just like the people that are around town. We read the Bible. The Gentiles are really anyone and everyone that isn't Jewish. And Israel was given, like Israel was given a mission to the nations, and they kind of forgot about it, right? Israel's, Israel was a signed nation. They were God's people that they were supposed to bring God's blessing to the nations. And so when we speak of Gentiles, we're talking about the nations. Galatians 3, 8 is an example where both are used, actually. Paul writes, the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations, that's the same word as Gentiles, all the nations will be blessed in you. So you can see even, even in the Abrahamic covenant, God was looking forward to the, the Gentiles, to the nations. Think of it this way. Um, Therefore, all you who are not Jewish by birth, if that's you, Paul's talking to you. And Paul was writing to this Gentile church, so he, he really wants them to understand this. There doesn't appear to be a problem in this church. So Paul is going to dive in and deal with something that, even though it's not maybe a functioning problem in this church, it's going to be something that they're all familiar with. It's a universal issue that they'll understand and can apply this principle to. So how were they separated, right? Well, we're talking about physical separation. There was a very obvious physical separation between the nation of Israel and the nations, and the Gentiles. And Paul addresses it. He says in verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. You see, the physical separation was, was anchored in this, this practice of circumcision. Um, and we're all familiar with what that is. The, it's the, just simply defined as a ritual act of incising or removing a male child's foreskin. And the Jews did that eight days after birth because that's what the Levitical law taught them to do. There was a formal practice of how they were to do it. And so the question is, well, why? Why did Israel practice this? Why did God institute this practice? Um, and it was part of God's seal of the covenant with Abraham. MacArthur says this, the symbolism of circumcision had to do with the need to cut away sin and be cleansed. And it was the male organ which most clearly demonstrated the depth of depravity because it carried the seed that produced depraved sinners. Thus, circumcision symbolized the need for profoundly deep cleansing to reverse the effects of this depravity. And there's, there's a number of times in the Old Testament God tied circumcision to many things. But understand that it's not just this picture it actually signified Israel as a totally distinct people group from the nations. Because they were very, Israel was proud of this, right? They would insult the nations, the Gentiles, by saying they're uncircumcised, right? They're unclean. They don't have, like, they don't have this sign. God gave us this sign for us. And the Gentiles, they don't do this. So they look down on them for it. And that's where you see that enmity comes in. God gave them something. It wasn't because, remember, God, God didn't tell Abraham, hey, I picked you because you're great right? God told Abraham, I picked you because I picked you. I love you because I love you. But Israel, they, they, they set that part aside, and they're like, God, God, is, God loves us. We're God's chosen people. He gave us this sign, and he didn't give any of you this sign. 
So they used it as a point where they would not, not only, God divided for a purpose that they forgot, but they used that as a purpose to, to insult and attack. You remember, God's purpose of this was really to, to make a distinct people because what happened in Genesis 3, God made a promise to restore mankind to himself, and then God created a people so it would be very obvious through whom the promised seed would come. So that we wouldn't have to guess, well, is the Messiah, are they going to come from the Persians, or are they going to come from the Chinese, or the, the Babylonians, they're going to come from the Americas or Europe. Now, God was really clear, listen, like my, my seed, my chosen one is going to come from Israel, and I'm going to give them some, some specific distinctions, and a primary physical one with circumcision, so that it is obvious, it is obvious the people from whom the Messiah will come. But... The point of circumcision wasn't just a physical identifier. We see often throughout the scriptures that, that it's not just the physical identity. It's supposed to turn into a heart attitude. A number of times in the Old Testament, God tied circumcision to an obedient heart because God's people were supposed to be obedient to him. That was supposed to be a marker. Not just, hey, these people are going to be different, but they're also going to act different. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, um, Moses wrote, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Jeremiah used this example a number of times. He said in Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet un uncircumcised. What does that mean? He's going to punish all who are circumcised yet uncircumcised? What are you talking about? Jeremiah. It says, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clipped their hair on the temples, for all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. Uncircumcised in heart. God made it really clear, listen, Israel, just because you have this practice doesn't mean that you're like through the door and that you're safe, which they missed, right? You remember Jesus Jesus said, hey, you're of your father the devil. And they're like, we have Abraham as our father. What are you talking about? We've never been enslaved to anyone. Don't know what you're talking about, Jesus. He says, if Abraham was your father, you'd do the works of Abraham. If Abraham was your father, you'd put your faith in me, and your faith would be reckoned as righteousness. See, Israel missed the total point of this physical separation, but Paul is illustrating here that this physical separation was real. There was a real point. There was supposed to be a divide among the nations. And, and I think it's, a really, it's really practical. Like there are, there are people, like show, show of hands, because this is part true. Are there people that your parents would say, hey, don't associate, you should not associate with those people? Like maybe people that are going around, like you can't, down here in Texas, you can't like bash mailboxes off a post because they're all brick, but I grew up in the country, and people would do that. They would drive around in a car with a baseball bat, and they would like knock down people's mailboxes. Like, why would you, like, it's my mailbox. Like, I mean, I mean, and actually it's a federal crime because you buy a mailbox, it's actually not your property, it's property of the federal government that you pay for, and so it's actually a pretty serious crime to do that. But like, people, like, don't go driving around in cars with those people that are bashing mailboxes, right? You shouldn't, you shouldn't associate with those people. It's not okay. And, but it's one thing to say, hey, I shouldn't hang around with them. It's another thing to just go, you know what, those people, those people over there that do that, we're going to, like, let's just talk bad about them and insult them and treat them like they're just the most disgusting people that ever existed. 
Your parents don't tell you to do that, right? They say, hey, you shouldn't associate with those people. Most of your parents, I'm, I'm sure, don't say, hey, but you should, don't associate with them and also treat them like trash. They don't do that. But that's what Israel did with the Gentiles. They're like, hey, we shouldn't associate with them. Great, we're going to double down and we're going to treat them like dogs. They totally missed the point. <clears throat> so the Jewish people were obedient to that practice through Christ and, and, and even through today, they still, they still engage in the practice of, of circumcision. Even to the point, remember in Acts 16, verse 3, Paul had Timothy circumcised, and it wasn't because Timothy was supposed to obey that law. It was because Timothy was from a Greek and a Jewish background. So if he wasn't circumcised, it would have shown those Jewish people that he really kind of had abandoned that Jewish past, and it would have been a problem for his ministry in that city in those early days. But Paul was going to minister to the Jews, so he needed that to happen. Um, and Genesis 7.14 actually gives clear instructions on, on how to relate to a Jew who's not circumcised in, in the proper manner. But, but an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So if a Jew won't do that, well, he's broken my covenant, he should go. And if, if Timothy is saying he, he's a Jew and he was, remember, he was taught, he was taught by his mother and grandmother in the scriptures from birth, if that's going to be his story, because it's true, but it's uncircumcised, well, it kind of shows like, well, you didn't even do any of that stuff. So you should be cut off. We shouldn't believe you. If you're going to say you're a Jew, but you haven't done this very basic thing. So that's why Paul had done that. It wasn't to fulfill some law that is for Christians today. It would have cost them the ability to, to minister. <clears throat> but we're not just, there, there's not just a physical separation there, is a, there was a citizenship separation. If you were uncircumcised, if you were a Gentile, you weren't a citizen, like by definition, if you're a citizen of another nationality, you're not a citizen of, it, citizen of Israel. And there's benefits that come with that, just like there's benefits of being a citizen of America. If you're a citizen of China, if you live over in China, you don't get access to our, or you shouldn't, um, depends on who's, who's in charge, but you, you don't get access to our court system. You don't have our freedoms. If you live in China, you don't get our constitutional freedoms. They don't apply to you because you don't live here. <clears throat> you don't have access to our economy. You can't buy and trade in the American system of economy. Well, why? Because you're in, in China, and that's why if you go on um, Amazon.com, well, they have a different thing. It's called Alibaba, but it's the same thing. Um, different company, same thing. Um, but if you go buy something online, you don't buy it with American currency. You buy it with Chinese currency because that's the economy you're living and working in. You don't get benefits of our federal and state programs. If you're a citizen of, of, of China, of Russia, you don't get to get food stamps because you're poor. Like, we don't send people in China who are, who are not doing well Medicaid and, and food stamps, right? Well, I guess we're not going to get into it. Sometimes we do. But they call it something else. Um, <clears throat> but as a matter of principle, you don't get those benefits. And, and, and that makes sense. So... The Gentiles, in the same way, didn't get benef the benefits of being part of the nation of Israel. There were specific laws that ex exclude them, uh, ceremonial examples. The, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the institution of the Passover, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. These people that weren't part of national Israel they didn't get to participate in the spiritual ceremonies. That's how important they were. And, and just as an aside, 
That, that's, that's why, just like those who are not Israel did not participate in the Passover, that same principle is why unbelievers aren't to participate in communion because they're not part of God's spiritual kingdom. They're remembering something that they have no part in, right? Why would, why would, why would the nation of Egypt participate in, in the Passover? They, don't, they didn't participate in that. Why would, why would the nation of Babylonians participate in the Passover? Why would, why would Jews invite them in and to do something that has nothing to do with them? In fact, they, they don't believe it happened at all. They don't believe in that God. So why would they participate? In the same way for unbelievers, that's why, that's why Tom says each communion Sunday that if, if you're an unbeliever, you shouldn't do this because it's not for you. Communion isn't for unbelievers. It's not just something we do to have snack. It has a real significance. And that same principle you see carried through in the New Testament. So the unbelievers, the nations, weren't allowed to participate in the Passover or any of the other ceremonies in Israel. They didn't make sacrifices in the temple. That's actually the next point. Gentiles weren't, were, were not allowed in the temple. There was actually a court, in Herod's temple, there was, it was called the Court of the Gentiles, and it was very outside. <clears throat> and they could go there, and some, there was some trade engaging, they could be talking with people. But then there was the, it was called, called the Most Beautiful Gate, because it was, it was made of incredibly beautiful materials. And they were not allowed to go through that gate. Actually, it, there was a sign and summarizing the sign, said, if you go through here, you will be punished under penalty of death. If a Gentile were to walk through the most beautiful gate, they could be killed. And the Romans actually allowed them to practice that, right? Because it would be civil unrest if they were just letting Gentiles go into the temple. They'd have a problem with the Jews being angry and rioting. So Gentiles not only weren't allowed to go into the temple, if they did, they could be killed. That's how serious it was. That's how separated they were. You, hey, you, you're not of the people of Israel. You can't walk on this ground. They're very separate. And that, that separation was actually so strong. You remember in, oftentimes in scriptures you see they walked here and there and they, like, and they said, shake the dust off your feet. They actually thought like the ground of the Samaritans who weren't Gentiles. They were, they were Jews that kind of strayed off. They, they, they didn't think that they that they were worshiping God the right way, because they weren't, and they'd shake the dust off their feet. And the same thing, if they, had to walk, if they had to, they would like they would walk around. If they could do it, they'd walk an extra couple hours or days to not walk through Gentile land. But if they had to, when they got done, they'd shake the dust off their feet because they didn't want to bring any of that dirty soil through into holy land. They didn't want that staying with them. So they'd shake the dust off their feet. There was also no social engagement. Jews didn't have Gentiles over for dinner. They didn't have sinners over for dinner. Do you remember Jesus got, he caught a lot of flack for that. He wasn't having Gentiles over for dinner, but he was having sinners, tax collectors, right? People that were not following the Pharisees' laws or people that weren't, um, their, their life didn't walk in step with the scriptures. They didn't, they didn't get to have them over for dinner. You didn't invite someone over for dinner. You didn't marry them. You couldn't marry a Gentile. Those are very actually specific instructions God gave. He said, don't intermarry with the nations when you go into the promised land, or ever. Why? Well, it's actually, it's not, it's, right, and it's not because we pick on those people, because they're, right, because there's some, like, we're going to be mean to them. What was the purpose of the Jewish nation, remember? It was the nation that the Messiah was going to come through. So you wouldn't distort, you wouldn't distort that nation. There was a, a catch, though, and we're going to talk about it in a moment, but if, if you were a Gentile and you converted if you were a sojourner in the land and you said, the God of Israel, Yahweh, 
Like, he is the true God. He's my God. Those things were all washed away because it really wasn't about your national, your national identity. It was about who was your God, who was the spiritual people of God. Um, <clears throat> William Barclay summarized, this is a long quote, but I think it's very helpful. He summarized the separation well. He writes this, The Jew had an immense contempt for the Gentile. The Gentiles said the Jews were created by God to be fuel for the fires of hell. So there's, look, that's pretty intense. God, said, God, they said, loves only Israel and all the nations that he had made. It is not, sorry, God loves only Israel of all the nations that he made. It was not even lawful to render, this is terrible, it was not lawful to render help to a Gentile mother when she was giving birth for that would simply be to bring another Gentile into the world. So you can, you can see how, how awful this separation is. Until Christ came, the Gentiles were an object, object of contempt. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Gentile or Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral of that Jewish boy or girl would be held, and, and they would act like they were dead. Like if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, Tevye says, you're dead to me, to his daughter when she's going to marry a Gentile. That, like, that's true. They would hold a funeral, and then that child would be dead. They wouldn't exist anymore to that family. Huge division, huge physical separation. But second, much more importantly than the physical separation that we Gentiles have with the people of God is our spiritual separation with the people of God. See, Paul continued, he said, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There are five ways in this verse that Gentiles were separated spiritually from God. And the first is that they're separated from Christ. <clears throat> See, John, Jesus said in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Gentiles were not part of God's spiritual people, and so they were separated from Christ. They had the spiritual capacity to do nothing. They were dead. Gentile nations, just like in Ephesians 2.1, were dead. They had no hope. They didn't have God. They could do nothing. They had no Savior. There was no spiritual hope for the Gentile nations. They had false gods who couldn't save. You remember Elisha when he's talking to this group and saying, hey, well, you have your God. I've got mine. Why don't you, whoever calls down, whoever's God sends down fire, he's real. And they limped around and like maimed themselves for hours and nothing happened. And Elisha was like, okay, well, I'm going to like make this like extra interesting. He's going to pour water on the sacrifice or pour water on it, like make it extra hard for it to get burned up. And then in an instant, he just prays and God pours down fire. Consumes everything. Consumes the wood, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the water. He's God. The Gentile nations didn't have God. They didn't have a God who could save them. Second, they were excluded from Israel. They're excluded from Israel, the nation that God had chosen to bring his Messiah through, that the nation that the Jews were right, God loved Israel. They were wrong in that God didn't love everyone else. Like they just totally, I mean, I don't know how you can read Genesis 12 and say, hey, through Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, all the nations are going to be blessed through you. And then Israel says, yeah, God loves only Abraham's people. I mean, 
I'm not the best with like, I didn't do very well on the ACT with like the reading and com comprehension part, but like that one's pretty easy for me. Seems like he loves all the nations. Got that. Israel didn't get that. But, but there were benefits in being the nation of Israel. First, they had God's word. Paul talks about these in Romans 9. They had God's word, and all through Romans, really. They got to serve in the temple, and God's people, they, they, and they, were, they got to be God's chosen people that many of them are in Jesus' family tree. That they were the people by whom God would bring the Messiah into the world who would live a perfect life, live the life that all of us, not just the Jews, but that all of us were supposed to live. He would die the death that all of us, not just the Jews, deserved. And also the Jews actually need Jesus' sacrificial death too. They missed that point. And that who was raised and who's seated at the right hand of God, this Jesus came through God's chosen nation for all humanity. But they got to be the people. They were the, they were the group that God picked. Not because they were special, but because God decided to chose them. Jesus said this in John 4, 22. He said, you worship what you do not know. This is to the woman at the well. He continued, we worship what we know for salvation comes from the, for salvation is from the Jews. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, hey, woman, salvation is for the Jews. Why are you worshiping on Mount Gerizim? He didn't say that. He said, no, salvation is from the Jews. It's going to come to all the nations. But it comes from the Jews. So there, there were, us Gentiles were excluded from that. We didn't get to be a part of that chosen people. But now through Christ, salvation has come to all men. Third, we're a stranger to the covenants. Gentiles are a stranger to the covenants. This word stranger is unacquainted with, something you're not familiar with. And it's very important, Paul's mention of circumcision is actually found here. Um, he talks about the promise. They're strangers to the covenants of promise. Not promises. God made lots of promises, but there is one promise that God made that Israel was very focused on. Turn with me to Genesis, <clears throat> to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis 17. Genesis 17, and, and let's just look at verse 1. Moses wrote, Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I'll establish, I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer will you, shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth. I, verse 7, this is key. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout the generations as an everlasting covenant to be God and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojourning, the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. And then verse 10, look at this. This is my covenant. Verse 10. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. God is restating his covenant with Abraham that he had made in chapter 12, and he's tying circumcision to it. 
It's actually very interesting. So we were strangers to the covenants, and that sign of circumcision was a point of that. All of these blessings were to come through, and God made that point to Abraham, saying, listen, I'm going to make my covenant with you, and what's a sign of that? Circumcision. Not as a point to divide and attack, but as a sign of the blessing that ultimately we will be poured out on all the nations through Abraham. Fourthly, Gentiles were without hope. Without hope. You can turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. The Gentile nations were without hope. Two times in the Bible, Jeremiah called Israel, or he called God the hope of Israel. See, Israel had hope. So that, that's the contrast here, is the Gentiles, they didn't have any hope because they didn't have God. They were separated from Christ. But Israel, they had God, so they had hope. <clears throat> Jeremiah thirteen seventeen writes, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. Now, also notice I just read to you a passage from John 4 where Jesus says, I am the living water. And Jeremiah says, Israel is the hope of the nations. And through them, he's going to give everyone living water. So you can see that it's just anyone who believes the Bible was written by just men making stuff up is, is I think, I think is like just not actually honestly assessing God's word because the, that, that intricacy of even this one idea of this living water that Jesus then spoke of in the same context the separation of Jews and Gentiles is incredible to me. <clears throat> when I think of people who had no hope, what does it look like for people who had no hope? For, for me, I always think back to September 11th because I was in eighth grade and we were watching on TV and like people, they, like some of those people had no hope. They're on the top floors and they would, what did they do? Well, they would just jump out of the building and they would die. They'd jump to their death. They had no hope. That is the condition of the nations before Christ is that they had no hope. Nothing, nothing to cling to. So they did desperate things. They did weird, fallen things, sacrificed their children to Molech, worship false gods, because they had no hope, but they were trying to find it. Don't you see that? That's why, that's why unbelievers make false gods, because they want hope. They're looking for anything that will find it, but they don't want the God of the Bible because they don't want his solution, so they make up false gods that give them worldly hope. Well, Finally, we say that not only did they have no hope, they were without God. Paul concludes this, without God in the world. It's actually interesting, that word without God, it's the only time this word shows up in Scripture. It's atheos. Atheos, which, if you're paying attention, sounds like atheist. And that's what it is. It's um, Cody's not here, but again, he called it something where you put an A in front of the word, and then it's the opposite. Same thing. Theos is God. Atheos is no God, or in this instance, translated without God. The Gentiles were without God in the world. Now, don't get me wrong. I just mentioned they, they came up with some fun gods. They invented for themselves many, many gods. Some, some, some Gentile nations like, like the Hindus today, they have millions of gods. The Canaanites had Baal and Ashtoreth. The Moabites had Shamash. The Ammonites had Moloch. Babylon had Marduk, Bel, and Nebo. Egypt and the Mesopotamians had long lists of gods. So they, they had them some gods. But Paul says they were without God. Isaiah 44, 6, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last, and there is no God besides me, 
Isaiah 45, 20. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. You fugitives of the Gentiles. Same word in the Septuagint, ethnos. You fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge. They don't know. Who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. They had gods, but they didn't have God. They had little g gods. They were without God in the world. Now, those five truths, those five truths that we were, that Gentiles and us, right, all of us Gentiles, we were separated from Christ, we're excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, we were strangers of the covenants, we had no hope, and we were without God. The then is that was true of the people of Israel. But I'll tell you what, the always is if you are here today and you are an unbeliever, or all of us before Christ, this is also a description of us, of all unsaved people. Of all unsaved people. They are separated from Christ. If you are, if you are not in Christ, clearly you are separated. Remember that in Christ, our position in Christ is a theme throughout this book. If you're separated from Christ, clearly you're not united with him. You're not in him. So the Gentiles are a picture, picture of all those who are unsaved. The commentator, uh, Thoroff Gilbrandt, he said this, just incredible, um, incredible quote. Um, I was listening to Alistair Begg, and he just happened to mention this, this quote. Um, said, they, the Gentiles, there's, f- there's five terrible words that describe the Gentiles. Christless, churchless, promiseless, hopeless, and godless. They had none of those things. Christless, churchless, promiseless, hopeless, and godless. They were cut off from loving friendship with the God of love. Ephesians 1 says, all of us before Christ were dead in our trespasses and sins. That was true of corporately, groups of people who oppose God. It's true of us each individually. And so our responsibility then as believers is what we'll see will come in the rest of this chapter. So how do we, how, and just in closing, how do we take action on this? What do we do? So, so we remember. We remember that we were separated from God physically. We remember that we're spiritually separated from God. How can, we, how can we apply that to our lives? How can we leave here and be changed through that? Well, first for the unbeliever, just understand that this is your condition today. You are separated from Christ. You are separated from Christ. You're separated from God's people. And no amount of striving can give you hope, can give you promise, can give you love, can give you what you need, salvation. Because salvation comes from the Jews. And the Jew, Jesus Christ, died and was raised for your redemption. That salvation has come, and all you need to do is turn from your sin and place your trust in that Messiah and that man who came from Abraham as a blessing to the nations, a blessing to all of us here. If you would just place your faith and trust in him and turn from your sins, then you would be in. You wouldn't be separated. You'd be united. You wouldn't be Christless. You'd be united with Christ. You'd be indwelled by God's own Holy Spirit. For the believer, how does this impact us? Well, I want you to look at verse 13. Verse 13. 
Just like in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul doesn't leave us in, in hopeless states here, dead in our trespasses. In verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How great a passage is that, like, Ephesians 2, I think it's Ephesians 2, 4, gets a lot of praise, like, but God. Like, that's a great verse. But this is, the, the truth found in verse 13 is just as incredible. But now in Christ Jesus, you Gentiles, you people who are cut off from God, Christless, hopeless, separated, you've been brought near. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. So Christian, I would, my, my, my first application point, my first encouragement is this week as we continue the study of this passage, just read and meditate on verses 13 through 22 because just like we studied how individually we have responsibilities and we have realities that are true in Christ, we're going to discover corporately how that reality plays out, how we are good team members, if you will, of the body of Christ. So in a few quick application points that you can even think of is, is set aside your, your personal priorities for Christ's priorities in the church. <clears throat> and second, set aside the strife of personal relationships. Set aside the strife of personal relationships. You see, just like the Jews and Gentiles, they had to set aside the strife of their personal relationships in the church. All of us here, we have personal relationships. We don't get along perfectly with everyone who's a Christian, right? Anyone else or is it just me? Right? I don't get along perfectly with everyone who's a Christian. And we can be honest about that, and we can, by the Spirit, work on that. Instead of allowing that division to grow and break apart the unity of the body of Christ. So by setting aside the strife of those relationships, we can be obedient to what Paul will teach us here, to, to set aside the, that enmity and strife in the body of Christ, because when we dwell in unity, we are most representing the truth of Christ and the Godhead, who before the foundation of the world was in perfect unity, planning to redeem people for the glory of Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled by this passage that those of us here who are Gentiles, we we truly see ourselves in this passage. And how much more real is, uh, is it for us now? The, the blessing of Christ who came through your chosen nation, the Jews, to redeem all those <clears throat> who would turn from their sin, place their trust in that Savior, in your Son. Lord, help us to, to understand the, the truth that is anchored in that, and that, that we who were formerly far off, we have been brought near by the blood of Christ. How much should that drive us to fellowship and engage in community in the body of Christ for the glory of your Son, in whose precious name we pray. Amen.